Ecclesiastes chapter 9 is where we're going to be for a few minutes this morning. A couple of three messages left to go in our Ecclesiastes series, and then we'll be switching gears mid-September and uh, coming back to the New Testament for an extended study of the New Testament letter of James, which uh, we're looking forward to. Uh, but we'll wrap, wrap up our series, and the last uh, couple of three messages are going to be on the subject that um, Solomon tends to emphasize in the last section of Ecclesiastes, a subject that he probably is the most known for of all the biblical writers, and that is wisdom. This is a lengthy passage of Scripture that has everything to do with the importance of making wise decisions in the will of God, understanding what wisdom is, asking God to give it to you, and then living accordingly. The most important thing that God, God's people can do, I think, this side of heaven as we live, to use Solomon's language, under the sun, until we get to that place where we'll be living wisely all the time, is to learn to make practical decisions wisely. Because as I've said before, the Bible's not going to address every single quandary of your life, every single issue uh, of your life. The Bible's not going to tell you whether you need to get in your car and drive to church on a rainy day or stay home and just watch online. That's a decision that you're going to have to ask God to give you wisdom to make and thousands and thousands others like them uh, throughout your life. Solomon's a good man to be teaching us about wisdom because he's probably the best known biblical character with respect to wisdom. He certainly writes more about it uh, than any other biblical writer. And I think maybe the best um, thing to do is to begin with a definition of wisdom that I've used for years, and you'll hear wisdom defined differently. You'll certainly see it defined differently in a dictionary definition. But from a spiritual perspective, I think there's a different twist, a different way to look at wisdom that's very important biblically. Namely, that wisdom from the standpoint of Scripture is a person's ability to see life and to respond to life from God's point of view. Does that make sense? Wisdom is the ability to see life, evaluate life, and respond to life from God's point of view, in a way that honors God, in a way that reflects well upon the Lord, in a way that does not counter some central tenet of the Word of God. Wisdom isn't so much what you know. There is a difference between wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge is pretty much what you know, but wisdom has far more than what you know. Wisdom has everything to do with what you decide and what you do with what you know. That's what makes for a truly wise person. And boy, is there ever a lack of wisdom in personal decision-making in the lives of the great majority of people who live today. And part of the reason that's true is that most people are not considering God at all with respect to the decisions that they make. And so most of the time, they'll make decisions by the gut or from the heart. One of the most dangerous things that you can do outside of the will of God is to follow your heart. And yet that's the prevailing wisdom of the world. Just follow your heart. Just go with your gut instinct. Danger, danger, danger. Did you get the tornado warning on your phone this morning? Nearly caused me to veer off the road. It was so loud. Well, that ought to be a warning that comes to people who make it their mission in life to live according to their heart or to live according to the instinct of their gut. Now, if your heart is attuned toward the Lord... 
If you're seeking the Lord with all your heart, if you trust in the Lord with all your heart, then that's a different thing. You can follow your heart because your heart is bent toward God. But generally speaking, the great majority of people don't do that at all. In fact, I'm amazed at how many people uh, know so much about things that, that matter so little. You know, this is a Jeopardy generation. How many people have you ever watched on the game show Jeopardy that seem to know everything about everything? And, and yet, so many of those people I watch and I'm thinking, well, I wonder if this person's ever accomplished anything in their life other than reading encyclopedias from dusk till dawn. Have they ever accomplished anything of value? Have they ever actually done anything? Have they ever made an appreciable difference to life whatsoever? Or are they, to use my father's vernacular, just a bunch of educated idiots, right? And so there are people who can quote every statistic under the sun about baseball, about football, uh, about whatever, but they simply don't know how to make wise decisions in the will of God, and they wonder why their lives are dry or why they've experienced so many sideways collisions with their life. Well, here in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, Solomon emphasizes the value of wisdom, first of all. And then in the next couple of chapters, he gives us practical applications about how wisdom is seen in the life of a person, which is basically what we're going to look at next week, two or three of these practical applications of wisdom in everyday life. But Solomon begins, first of all, just emphasizing the general value of wisdom. And he begins with a parable about wisdom here in chapter 9 and verse 13. Let's read the first few verses and then we'll take it a block at a time because it's a rather lengthy passage. Solomon writes, I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun here on earth. And it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. And yet no one remembered that poor man. Now, let's just stop there for a moment. Great little parable, great little story. And we have uh, uh, an encounter of a poor wise man who faces off with a, apparently a great and powerful king uh, who outsmarts him. The, 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 the wise unnamed man, this anonymous man, outsmarts this great well-known king. And we don't know how he did it. Solomon doesn't go into any great detail here. But he saves the day. And the funny thing about it is, he's totally unrecognized for it. You know, nobody throws him a ticker tape parade. Uh, they don't give him uh, a bonus check out of the city treasury. Uh, the town doesn't send him on a cruise. He doesn't get a street named after him in the heart of town. In fact, Solomon goes out of his way, says eventually nobody even remembered who he was at all. But Solomon, this man who is marked by the presence of wisdom more than anybody else in the Bible uh, is drawn to this man. He's impressed by his wisdom. And with this as the backdrop, he draws three very important conclusions from the man's life. The first is simply this. Godly wisdom is better than strength. Godly wisdom is better than strength. Or if you prefer, use the word might. 
Wisdom is better than might. Now that's counterintuitive to the world in which we live today that tends to place a supreme value on strength or on power or on authority. That's what you've got to have, the, uh, the world will say, in order to have a truly successful life. And yet the biblical writers are very clear, nothing could be further from the truth. To be possessed of wisdom is better than to be possessed of simple strength. That's what Solomon says here in the first part of verse 16. But I say that wisdom is better than might. That was certainly true in this military situation where this young man, obscure in every respect, came up with some great idea. Only eternity knows what it is. But by his wisdom, he totally outsmarts and totally defeats this great king who's got a standing army behind him. We don't know if that was just simple reason or strategy or diplomacy, but however it happened, it was because that man applied wisdom. And you don't often see that in the world today. In fact, most people, again, place the value on the other end. Strength, might, popularity, right? I've often heard stories. How many of you have, all, have ever been to a high school reunion? One of your high school reunion? And, and maybe a, a period of time has passed and you didn't recognize people. I'm amazed of how many people go to high school reunions only to find out that many of the guys that the girls wanted nothing to do with are the most well-dressed, driving the most expensive cars, doing the most, uh, 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 having the most success out in the world. You know, my mother used to always say to the girls, uh, and I didn't date many girls, but she would always let them know, you know, the nerds make the best husbands. Y'all know that, don't you? <laughs> and sometimes that proves to be true. And sometimes you look at the guys who are popular, right? And they just are stuck in the mud, really haven't gone anywhere in life. Now, that's an overgeneralization. But the point is that the richest dividends are usually produced not by those who are popular, but by those who are wise. So much of that was just the result of making wise decisions with the information that people had at the time. There was a story about a strong young man, a well-built young guy that was new at a construction site. Man, he was a braggart in every respect. And he, he began to brag that he could outdo anybody in a show of strength. And he, he made uh, an especial point of poking fun at one of the older workmen. And after several minutes, that older worker who'd been around the block, you know, and he wasn't at retirement, but he could see retirement just over the horizon. He got tired of hearing that guy pop off at his mouth about how strong he was and how he could outwork everybody. And so the old guy says, you know what? Why don't you put your money where the mouth is? I'll bet you a week's wages that I can haul something in that wheelbarrow all the way across this construction yard that you won't be able to turn around and wheel back yourself. And the guy looked at him and he said, there's no way. I'll take that bet in a heartbeat. And he said, all right, let's go. He said, well, where are you going to put in the wheelbarrow that I'm not supposed to be able to wheel back? He said, you, get in the wheelbarrow. <laughs> See, wisdom may not always demonstrate itself in a show of strength. And it may not always bring popularity. And it may not always bring acceptance, as we're going to find out in a minute. It may actually cost you to make wise decisions in the will of God. But wisdom will always win the day 
in the long run, and you'll be thankful for it. That's the first thing Solomon would remind us. Wisdom is better than what? Wisdom is better than strength. But then he moves on to remind us, in reality, godly wisdom, better than strength, yes, but godly wisdom isn't always followed. You won't always follow it. And sometimes in a group dynamic, you may be shouting the wisest thing of all and other people won't follow it for whatever reason. Again, notice verse 16. Wisdom is better than might, though, and that though indicates a shift in direction, though the poor man's wisdom is what? Say it out loud. Despised. And his words are not what? Heard. That's right, because he's just not a significant person. He's not a popular person. Now, in the parable, the people of this little unnamed city are very wise to listen to that man. But most of the time, that won't happen. And then he says in verse 17, the words of the wise heard in quiet. This is a proverb. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Sadly, wisdom is not always followed. And wisdom frequently will not always be rewarded. Now, it shouldn't be the case. I mean, particularly in a group dynamic, we ought to be quick to notice and to appreciate those who've made valuable contributions to our church or to our business or to our neighborhood or whatever. But much of the time, people won't notice. I mean, the poor man who delivered the city in this initial parable here in Ecclesiastes 9, not remembered soon forgotten, not rewarded in any way, shape, or form. Yet he saved the whole town from certain destruction. And the reason that that's true is because wise people tend to be humble. And they're not typically looking for the adulation or for the limelight. In fact, if you're walking the Spirit of God, you're not going to be concerned, really, whether anybody notices or not. Because the counter of that, the people that are concerned about people noticing what they decide and how they live and what they do and what they contribute. The people that are always demanding pats on the back or thank you letters for every single thing that they do typically are not humble people. They're proud people and pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And so there's usually this connection between a person who lives wisely in the will of God and humility. They're usually the most humble people and they're really not concerned who gets the credit or if anybody notices uh, at all. And it may have been a suggestion that they made that cost or that to uh, save the money or save the uh, company or, or the church or whatever, hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars, maybe even save the organization altogether. And yet other people are going to get the rewards for that. And yet Solomon says that kind of wisdom is far better than a ruler, somebody with authority, somebody with power, <clears throat> a ruler, a boss, a CEO that wields their authority, lording it over people, screaming and yelling and hollering, trying to foster uh, nothing but fear. Y'all ever worked for a person like that before? Amen. Makes for, I heard that amen, amen. Uh, if you've worked for a person like that before, you know the difficulty associated with that. But that's not a, a wise person. Rudyard Kipling, the great British poet, poet laureate of England in the Victorian era, wants to find maturity and poise is the ability to keep your head when everyone around you is losing theirs and blaming you for it. That's wisdom. That's poise. That's spiritual 
maturity. The world may not applaud the wisdom of your life today, but here's the thing. God always does. God always does. And if you make a decision to live wisely, contribute wisely, even if nobody applauds you for it, you'll be richer for it. God surely rewards it. You'll be a better person, better man, better woman for it. There is a price that's often paid for making decisions that go against the grain sometimes. You'll pay a price for living wisely. I mean, living biblically is the very definition of living wisely. That's what wise living is. Wise, the only thing in the world wise living is is biblical living. And that is to make a decision to swim a completely different direction. You'll, go, you'll be swimming upstream when everybody else is swimming downstream. And that's living for Jesus. Living for Jesus, deciding for Jesus, not always, but many times going to isolate you. You're going to have to stand alone. And we don't like that. I don't always like that. But it's always the right thing to do when it's the biblical thing to do. Many have had to do that. You read many biblical characters, men like, I mean, we've talked about some of them already in this series, Daniel and, and Joseph. And Job had to stand alone. Job was suffering in total isolation. And he lived his life as wisely as any man ever has. And yet he was criticized for it. Moses was put in a position more than once where he had to make solitary decisions, knowing that he was doing the right thing in the will of God. And yet, it cost him, it cost his people. The Apostle Paul, how many times did Paul stand alone, get run out of town, chased out of town, beaten for wisdom? Early apostles had to do that, the early church fathers. Even Jesus himself, for crying out loud, was left standing all alone to face the terrible wrath of God as he hung and died on the cross. And yet we're all grateful that he did that. People like that, so many others, have chosen wisdom over popularity. They've chosen God over the crowd. And while the crowd mocked and while the crowd jeered and scorned and sometimes even persecuted, in every one of those people's lives, God always took notice. God noted it. And God always honors our commitment to him. He'll always honor our decisions that are made wisely, according to the scriptures, wisely in the will of God. The Bible says that the one who honors me, I will honor, says the Lord. So never forgive that, uh, forget that. And really, if you're a believer living wisely and obediently, here's the thing. You're really never in a position, even this side of heaven, where you have to stand all alone. You're really not in a position like that. First of all, as Paul said uh, in 2 Timothy, there came a time where no one stood with him. And then what does he say? Comma. But the Lord stood with me, and the Lord defended me, and the Lord will defend me. So he had this consciousness of God's constant companionship. And yet, let me say this. God gives us the gift of the church for a reason. Namely, so that we don't have to do life alone. And so, even if you ever forget the idea that the Lord is always with you, 
You stay connected to the body of Christ, you're going to have other flesh and blood believers who stand together with you as well, who journey together with you as well. I get tickled sometimes at, well, not tickled. In fact, I'm grieved by it. But so many people, well, we do church at home, you know. We, 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 just, we, just, we do it together as a little family. And I'm always, you know, to be honest with you, I'm kind of dubious as to how regular they really do church at home. But the reality is a lot of people, they don't think they need the church. Oh, I confess I need the Lord. That's just, I don't want to have anything to do with that church down there in that corner, right? Can I make a statement this morning as the rain falls? There's going to come a time you're going to need flesh and blood in your life. There's going to come a time where you need the presence of like-minded people. Just as Moses needed people to help him hold his arms up when they got weary. Because in those times where his arms began to fall was when the battle started to go the other way. And so we need God and we need one another. Sometimes the wise decision is a solitary decision that often isolates you. But God is always with you. And if you're connected to the body of Christ, other people are standing with you as well. Now, third thing Solomon points out is that as advantageous as wisdom is to us, to a community, to a family, to a team, to an organization, to a church, to an individual, the third thing he reminds us is that godly wisdom can be silenced by one foolish voice. One foolish voice. Wisdom is better than strength. Wisdom isn't always followed by the individual or by the group. But then godly wisdom sometimes can get shut down by an outside voice. We have to be very careful about that. Whether that outside voice is an inner voice in our own life that's contrary to the will of God, an impulse of the flesh, or whether it's an actual voice coming from within the context of a group or an organization, the voice of one person can undo the effect of a multitude of wise counsel. Look at verse 18. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. That's a really important statement. That's another proverb. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. In other words, there's nothing stronger than the presence of wisdom in a person's life to bring forth fruitfulness and victory. And yet, a note of practical reality, one sinner destroys much good. In other words, you've got to be careful because one foolish voice can counteract a multitude of wisdom. This is the proverbial one bad apple spoils the whole what? Spoils the whole bunch, whole barrel, right? Remember the statement that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 5 and 5 where Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And what does leaven refer to? When he says a little leaven, he's using leaven as a metaphor for what? For sin, that's right. And a little bit of sin can act as this catalytic agent that just goes nuts. And this is part of the reason within a, within a group, particularly within a church. And this is part of the reason why, for example, Ananias and Sapphira, God struck them dead within the body of Christ. 
Why did God fundamentally do that at this critical juncture in the nature of the early church? Because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And that was his way of demonstrating to the whole body, you, you don't trifle with God. You don't play fast and loose with sin. It's part of the reason. There in, in 1 Corinthians 5 and 5 where Paul says a little leaven the, leavens the whole lump, what's the context there? There's a man that's having sexual relations with his father's wife in the church. And Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. This man has been approached time and again. He's totally unrepentant. Therefore, what's the remedy? What does he tell them to do? Remove the man from among you. That's right. You say, well, that sounds harsh. Well, not really. Because the man had been given opportunities to turn from his sin, to do what is clearly right. And where that doesn't happen, Paul says, hand the man, if the man is determined to live for the devil, hand him over to the devil. But with a positive and hopeful outcome that he'll turn. See, God just said amen with the lights right there. He's on my side this morning. Right? So a little bit can change the whole dynamic. I need to talk fast, 78 RPM, let's wind it up. Sin can have a corrupting effect on your life and on others who are trying to please the Lord with their life. I've seen and heard through the years, more times than I can count, churches make terrible decisions not because the leadership wasn't trying to lead them down the right path, but because of the voice of one isolated influencer who didn't like the direction. And he, he strong-armed the majority into making a poor decision independently of the will of God. I knew of a church several years ago that came into a little bit of extra money. And they had to determine how to use it. And you've probably had that happen in your own life. Maybe you got a $1,000 bonus and you had six different places to put $1,000. Y'all ever been there? So you had to make a decision. What's the wisest thing that I can do with this money? Well, this is what this little country church was having to do. Pastor was trying to do his best. They'd hired a young pastor just a couple of years earlier. The average age of the church was probably 60 to 62 years old, and they were trying, they were trying, he was trying to impact the community to get younger people in to the church. And so he was trying to lead the church to take that extra money they'd come into to renovate the preschool area of the church, to modernize it, to freshen it up, its appearance, and to buy new supplies. And they could have spent easily the entire amount of money doing that. He said, this is the wisest thing that we can do in order to accomplish the mission that we're trying to accomplish in this community. But there was one man in the church who had for years been trying to get the church to purchase a piece of property next door in order to put a cemetery there. And he began to work the church. He was a mover, shaker, family had been in the church for generations, major influencer. Everybody was behind the pastor. But when it was all said and done by a razor-thin vote, the church voted not to touch the preschool but to buy the land for the purpose of putting in cemetery. Now, let me just say, y'all still with me? Amen? I'm not a post-church cemeteries. I mean, we've got churches all around us that have church cemeteries. So I'm not a post-church cemetery. When you've got a situation where there is 
stiff competition for money. There's a scarcity of funds, and you've got to make a wise decision. Can I just say that the wise decision is to choose a decision that tends to lean toward life rather than death every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Not a smart decision. And yet that's what one lone voice could do. I could tell you four different stories that are just like that. All of them absolutely true. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Now, let me land the plane this morning just by a quick overview of the first three verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 10, because what Solomon does is move here in chapter 9 from this statement about the value of wisdom to the dangers of foolish behavior. In other words, what are the dangers of not appropriating wisdom in your life? And in chapter 10, verse 1, he shares this unusual proverb that comes right on the heels of his statement about one sinner destroying much good. Very familiar statement. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench so that a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. And that's exactly what we're talking about. Now, this little proverb here is where we get the source of the well-known phrase, a fly in the ointment. You all have heard that before. Well, that's where it comes from right there. And it's kind of a, a proverbial or a poetic way of showing how just a little bit of foolishness can spoil the fragrance of a person's dignity or a person's character or a person's reputation. Not just for a person, but for a group dynamic as well. Flies basically are insignificant in the scheme of, of things. You know, flies are not that big, but man, they can just be worrisome, right? And the scripture says here that there's this perfumer's oil, and think about the woman in the New Testament that broke the alabaster flask that was full of this wonderful ointment, this wonderful perfume that flooded the room with its aroma, very costly, one year's wages just to buy that alabaster flask of oil. And that's what you got going on here, this very costly substance created with great care and great skill that didn't just happen overnight. It was a process of time in order to develop this beautiful perfumed ointment. And yet how easily the insignificant can spoil the valuable. That's what Solomon's talking about here. The point is it's just easier to ruin something than it is to create something. Amen. It's easier, easier to mess something up than to construct something up. I mean, the financier Warren Buffett said years ago, something that I've quoted for years, especially to my kids, it takes 20 years to build a reputation and five minutes to lose it. I mean, which is easy, to put a 1,500-piece puzzle together or to break it up? Which is easier to, to, to knock a, stock of, of, a, a stack of blocks over or to build them up? I mean, I, I get down on the floor of my grandson and painstakingly build these little towers of blocks. And then he just, boom! <laughs> and he knocks it all down. I mean, it takes three years to build a football stadium and seconds to implode it. And that's what Solomon's talking about here. It takes a long time to create sweetness. 
But it only takes a few seconds to make a stink. And this is why cultivating a life of wisdom is very important. Now, as I indicated earlier, the fly in the ointment might be a person. It might be a person. One person out of sorts with God can lead a whole group into sin. One negative person can throw a wet blanket on everybody's hope. One hypercritical person can single-handedly create an atmosphere of discouragement. And can I just make a statement publicly this morning? I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be that guy. And I hope you don't want to be that person either. Don't be the fly that corrupts the sweet aroma of an ointment, of a commodity that God is building in your life. Sometimes that voice that brings everything crashing down can be that temptation urge of your flesh within your own life. It doesn't even have to be another human voice. It can simply be the devil appealing to your flesh. Saying, you know what, it's not that big a deal. It's not that big a deal. I mean, it's easy to think that. Because the second thing here, and more personally, the fly in the ointment might be a person, but it also might be a flaw in your character. One hidden fault, one secret sin. I, I, I'm pretty much, there, there probably are exceptions, but I'm pretty much of the opinion that most all of God's people have at least one thing in their spirit that they battle with pretty consistently. One thing that our enemy knows that he can kind of go in and start scratching on it and potentially get you to act on it, trip you up for a mighty fall. I mean, it may be a bad attitude. It might be a bad habit. It might be some tendency in your life. It might be an omission of something in your life that you're not doing, that you ought to be doing, that if you don't get that corrected, it could lead to real spiritual trouble. And it's easy to think it's just a small deal. I mean, it's just a little relationship. It's just a little flirtation. I don't plan on doing anything with it, just my nature. Just a little thing, just a little edge in the voice, just a little wandering off in the wrong area. It's just a little thing. But what was Paul's words a minute ago? Just a little leaven affects the whole lump of dough. And that's why Solomon writes what he does here in verse 2. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. And let me just say here in the bright red panhandle of Florida, this is not a political statement that, <laughs> that Solomon is making. I know some of you are sitting on your hands. You want to go, amen. But he's not making a political statement. Of course, in the minds of a Jew, the right hand was a position of strength. Where is Jesus seated right now? At the right hand of God the Father. The, the left was considered a position of weakness with all due respect to the Southpaws in the audience today. You know, there was a judge, uh, uh, one of the judges, wasn't Shamgar, was, I think the one came right after Shamgar, was left-handed. He's the one that stabbed Eglon the king, you know, and right in the belly. And that's God's way of showing, here's the thing, why, why does the writer of the Judges go out of his way to highlight a left-handed guy? 
to show that God can use anybody. <laughs> That's right. Because that was considered a disability. To be left-handed was considered a handicap. Now, thankfully, not anymore, amen, but to them it was. And so the position of left was a position of weakness. The position of right was the position of authority or strength. Jesus at the right hand of God the Father at the judgment. There'll be a separation of sheep from the goats, and the sheep will be cast to the Father's right, the goats to the Father's left. It's a statement of judgment. So Solomon is saying simply here that wisdom puts a person in a position of strength while the selfish person is deemed a fool and lives his or her life in a position of weakness. Verse 3 continues that thought. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. And here's the thing, driving on some of these back roads here in Escambia County, seeing people walking on the side of the road where there is no shoulder in dark clothing at night. I want to say, why don't you just put a sign on your back saying, I'm a foolish man. I used to tell my kids, I'm more worried. I'm not as nearly as worried about you guys getting in an auto accident than I'm you hitting somebody unintentionally on the side of the road. Well, that's what Solomon is saying here. In other words, it's, it's not hard to identify somebody that's foolish. Only the fool doesn't recognize himself to be a fool. Everybody else can see it plainly because they're walking haphazardly. Danger all around them, and they don't seem to care. They refuse to consider there might be a better way to go about this. So the lesson this morning from this lengthy passage is very simple. What's the lesson? Don't be a fool. How simple is that? The Bible paints a clear picture between right and wrong, between wisdom and foolishness, and God gives us the choice. We have to make a decision how we're going to live, and here's what that means practically. You got to know the Bible. Can't live wisely without living biblically. That means you need to be in the Word because you can't make wise decisions unless you know the heart of God. You can't know the heart of God without knowing the Word of God. You listen to godly counsel. Solomon will say that in the book of Proverbs. There's wisdom in a multitude of counsel. So know the Word. Get wise counsel. Choose not to learn everything by experience. Experience is a great teacher, but it'll rough you up and you'll have bruises and scars all over you. I'd rather learn from somebody else's bruises and scars than from my own. Part of the reason you got the Bible, because you got a lot of bruised up, scarred up people in the Bible that didn't always obey God. So learn from the mistakes of others. That's wisdom. And above all, make sure that you have a heart that leans to the right, a heart that leans toward God. A heart that longs more than anything else. I want to please God with my life. This is the message of Solomon. Wisdom is better. In fact, that may be the best single summary of all of Solomon's teaching. Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, you put them all together. What's the, what's the message of Solomon? Wisdom is better. Wisdom is better. And the way to get wisdom is very clear. Know God's word, seek God's guidance, learn from others, lean on the grace of God, and then decide, I will obey God 
and leave all the consequences to him because you are never wiser than when you know and consistently live the will of God. Wisdom is better. Do it and bring glory to God with your life. This is God's word and all God's people said, amen and amen.